seven minutes after 11. You know what time it is. This part of the program is not suitable for sensitive listeners and for anyone under the age of 18. Note that the views expressed on this show are not that of the station or the presenter. Closet Conversations. It's time to shut the front door and open the closet. No one under the age of 18 should be tuned in. As we welcome our A-team guest, Dr. Anthony Smith, who's a family physician and a medical sexologist. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Smith. Patricia, thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Smith, we are talking men's health, but men's health is very intertwined to the women in their lives. <laughs> Don't you think so? Oh, no, that's absolutely right. You know, in, when, you, when you think about sexual health in general, there's a truism that you always think of the couple. You know, if, if you're seeing somebody who's complaining of anything related to sexual health, you immediately think of their partner. And the partner, of course, can be, can be anybody. Mm, mm, very true. So when it comes to men's health, at what age should men be considering uh, to have their annual checkups? So in general, um, it really does depend in part on the person themselves. Um, I would say there's probably no early enough time to do that because at an early age, you know, this is the age when you're becoming independent of your parents in your 20s and 30s, you have a unique set of risks to your health, which are different to that in your 40s and 50s. And traditionally, uh, many of the audience would have maybe thought that I would say, well, maybe when you're 50 or 60. But in fact, I think from an early age, it's a very good training to do what's almost like an audit of your health. And if you're relatively healthy, you don't see it as going and looking for disease. You look at, look at it as a meeting with somebody who can help you to be the healthiest that you possibly can. And of course, if you've got a personal or a family history of a particular illness, that makes it all the more important. But obviously, as you get older and you become more at risk of, of, of various illnesses and certain things in your body start, start to not work as well as they did when you were younger, the importance rises. You've got to be starting to you've got to screen for certain illnesses, uh, you may uh, need to take certain medications, have certain tests, um, and it becomes all the more important to prevent problems before they arise. So, if a man is in his 20s, 30s, and 40s, are the tests similar, or do, do they differ the older they get? They, there's overlap, but there is a difference. In your 20s and your 30s, well, let's even say your 20s, your, your major statistical risks, you could say, are from these types of things. So first of all, you could you know, talk about sexuality. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases is something that you often need to be thinking about. Um, as well as that, this is a group um, of young adults who are often taking risks and finding their own identities. So as a result, they're going out into the world and they're doing things which may confer on them certain possibilities of harm. So this is the age group where men get into fights, where um, men are likely to have accidents, car accidents, get intoxicated or have problems with substances and mental health issues. Now, we know that there's a rising uh, amount of issues with regards to mental health in, 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 in men, and, well, men and women in, in, their, in adolescents and certainly young people in their 20s. Infectious diseases also are, are important. And then it becomes a question of what your individual susceptibilities would be. So you know, young people have allergies, they have illnesses like diabetes, they have inflammatory bowel conditions, there's all kinds of other illnesses which need to be uh, treated. 
But in general and as a whole, this is not a group of people who are going to be looking at degenerative joint and brain and heart diseases. It's, a, it's, it's really a different demographic altogether. But it's a good training to be able to be aware of your body. When you're young, you seldom really think about your mortality because you're really protected from it in so many different ways. Um, you, you know, you think this could never, ever happen to me. And just getting into that training so that you're aware of your body and you know how to look after it um, is, I think, really a very, very useful thing. ATMS, we are talking closet conversations and it's all about men's health, men's sexual health, uh, the things you need to check for, the things you need to know. Perhaps you've been struggling as a man and uh, there's certain things you don't understand the older you are getting with regards to your, 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 your physique and your sexuality and your sexual performance. Please call in, ask your questions on 11 or WhatsApp on 614 Uh, Dr. Smith, Mm. most men are very reluctant to go for a consultation, especially with a urologist or around their sexual health. And I don't understand why the reluctance, especially if they've noted some sort of, you know, uh, you know, error, I don't know, error or some change. They just reluctant. Why? Yes, I think it's such an important question to answer. And I think also to reflect that this is across the board for young people and old people. And, you know, we, we, we think of, you know, the sexual problem, you know, par excellence, the most common one is erectile dysfunction. And, and you know, you've got to ask yourself, okay, just say you are experiencing a problem. Um, why would a man not go and immediately talk about it? And, and really, it's multiple answers to that question. And in really no particular order. You could say that certainly in, in our culture, in our dominant culture, it, it really isn't the, the done thing for a man to immediately shame himself. It's, you know, it's, it's considered as shameful to present that vulnerability of saying there's something wrong with himself on that kind of level. Um, and whereas women have a language of being able to speak in a much more familiar and open way about their bodies, I mean, they've had much more training that they've, they've got through pregnancy, um, they've uh, got their periods, um, they then you know, are raising, and, and this is obviously a very kind of somewhat cliched and generalized answer, but I think it does stand true for, for the large majority of people. But they've got, um, they're often the primary caregivers within their families, and so they have like a, a vernacular. They've got a way of being able to speak about all these problems, and men just don't really have the words to be able to describe them. They feel shamed, and often they're very embarrassed. And, you know, at the same time, there's many, many doctors out there. And, you know, you mentioned urologists. In many ways, it's, it's really the, the GPs, the primary care physicians who are the first port of call for, for these men who will go for something else and maybe in a very embarrassed way kind of, you know, clear their throats at the end of the consult and say that there's something else that they wanted to talk about. But the research actually shows that people do want to talk about their sexual problems, but they're often waiting for the doctor to actually mention it. And doctors themselves find it very difficult to talk about sexual issues. They may find that they're embarrassed. Um, They may find that they're scared about what's going to happen if they start opening up the subject because it really is such a taboo subject, sexual health. And um, many people feel incredibly uncomfortable with elements of it. They carry biases. They carry preconceived ideas. They have fears of certain kinds of things, and they have judgments of certain kinds of things. So it's a bit of a minefield. Though I have to say that 
there is an opening up. And what was really notable was the advent, the introduction of Viagra a number of years ago. And Viagra was probably one of the most revolutionary things that happened to men's health in, in really decades because it gave men an, ex, an excuse to be able to speak about their sexuality in a kind of a mechanical way. You know, if you're speaking to somebody who has difficulty talking about their emotions and they're coming in and say, Doc, you know, it's not working down there. You know, it's become like a, you can start it off, it's like a mechanical problem. You know, it's just, uh, it's not rising because it's just not filling with blood, which really is a way of talking about it, which takes away some of the embarrassment. And Viagra was something which you could use as a treatment and um, it was something available and it worked. Um, and so it opened up a huge conversation between men and their doctors, which continues to this day, really. Hmm. Yeah, A-Team is sending messages and it seems that they are worried about certain things. So let's get to their questions. This one is from mm. an anonymous who is in their early 50s. Anonymous says, I have not had sex for over 18 months. Is it hormonally dangerous and am I at risk of anything? I'm in my early 50s. So, I mean, this, this um, speaks to the thought of, you know, what is normal? What is the normal amount of sex that one should be having? And, and you know, is my neighbor having more sex than I am? And is the amount of sex that I'm having much less? And, and you know, will something go wrong with me if I don't, if I don't have sex? Well, the, the, the short answer is that there's a massive amount of variability in people's um, amount of sex that people have. And it's very, very unlikely um, that something would go wrong. But you'd have to ask a number of questions. For example, why is this gentleman not having sex? Does he want sex? Maybe he doesn't want and he's not interested and he has a low sex drive and he has throughout his whole life. And this is very much in keeping with how he's always been, in which case it's probably normal for him. But just say he was a gentleman who prior to this had a, a lot of sexual activity and it's changed now for whatever reason. And there is quite good research to show that sexual activity is healthy activity and that the, the, the byproducts, the positive byproducts of sexual activity, good sexual activity, are, are large. Well-being, sense of self-esteem, general health, um, kind of just general physicality, being in touch with your body, and of course creating an intimacy with a partner, which is so important. So you know, at the end of the day, I'd have to say, I can't say it's unhealthy, but it probably would be more healthy if he was having more sex. Um, but it really does come down to what the reasons would be behind why that's not happening. Now, in, in terms of men who are getting signs, you know, what sort of signs should men look out for uh, before they go and consult um, a, a medical sexologist or a urologist around their sexual health? Well, you, you know, if you, you and I think I'm assuming that you're talking about sexual dysfunctions, or you're talking also about just general issues with your with your genitourinary health. Yes. Um, if I may ask. Yes, definitely. Both both of those. Mm. Okay. So so there's two there's there's two things that that speak to that question. The first is it really is a good idea from the age of forty onwards to be monitoring your prostate. When I say monitoring your prostate, it means you want to be assessing and looking out for the possibilities of prostate cancer. Um, this can be done with your GP or with a urologist. And what that entails is a discussion with a doctor where he will do three things. He's going to firstly speak to you and ask you about the state of how your bladder works. 
How often you urinate? Do you wake up at night to go to the toilet? Have you got a good stream? When you pass urine, is there a good stream of urine coming out? Or do you find it's a little stream and then a few minutes later, there's a little bit of an after dribble that's coming out? So he'll ask you about that. He'll also ask you about your family history and if there's prostate cancer in your family. And if you're somebody who's got prostate cancer in your family, you really should be checking out maybe even younger than the age of 40 as to you know, whether you are at risk. So the first thing that the doctor will do is ask you some questions. The second thing is to do an examination of your prostate, which is always something a little bit uh, that men are a little bit hesitant for in the beginning. Um, it's an invasive examination, but really it isn't that invasive. It's over very quickly, and it really is beneficial in terms of um, reducing your risk of prostate cancer and really knowing what's going on with your prostate. So that examination is really important. And then the third aspect of the examination is to do a blood test for what's called a PSA, a prostatic-specific antigen, which is a marker for prostate cancer in your blood. And if you do that every year, you know, from the age of 40, then you start to track what your value is, and you also get a sense of what's happening to your prostate, and you're checking in so that you can get there very early. And you can, because it can be cured, prostate cancer, and it's really a sad thing when somebody has neglected themselves, and then they turn up and they've got prostate cancer, which has spread, or which has become a little bit less likely to be treated efficiently. But that's just prostate cancer. You know, there's a whole lot of variety of other things. And in general, it's like any problem. If the problem is persistent, and it could be pelvic pain, it could be that you are having erectile dysfunction, or that you've got premature ejaculation, or it could be that you have a lump in your scrotum where your testicle is. I mean, anything that's unusual, that isn't going away, that's bothering you for a prolonged period of time and anything that's causing you, you know, active suffering or your partner suffering. Really, there's no point in not going and getting it checked out because often there's a simpler solution than the massive forest of ideas and terrible thoughts that have grown up in your mind. Another question here from an ATMA in his early 30s. It says, uh, Patricia, please ask the doctor, what could be the reason for painful testicles? I have um, no symptoms of STI, no funny smell, no swollen glands, no outgrowths, no painful urethra, no swelling. My testicles get painful when I touch them. So, and that's a somewhat unusual condition. Um, but one has to remember that that whole area is covered with a nest of nerves which extends deep into, we call it the perineal area, the groin area and that area right below between the anus and the testicles. Um, and that's a very, very sensitive area. And um, if it was a very short period of time, it could just be a bit of trauma. It could have been something that stretched, pulled. Was, um, you, you often find this with cyclists or with um people who have had recurrent trauma or um, recurrent um, uh, stretching of that area. But if this is a chronic problem that's coming and going, um, it becomes a slightly more tricky thing. And we think of this um, as what we call chronic pelvic pain. So one has to now try to figure out why, what actually started that pain in the beginning and what's keeping that pain going. What is the association with the pain and why has it become stuck there? Because what you now have is a pain syndrome where the nerves are kind of going around in circles. The pain is just perpetuating itself. And it could be re referent to a, a high tone in the muscles of the perineum. 
It could be related to anxiety mm-hmm. around that area, around the genital area. Um, and, you know, it, it actually still could be an infection. And certainly you'd need to also check to see that the testicles and the epididymis, which is the small little bundle of tubes which lies on top of the testicle and which is where your sperm are stored, don't have a little cyst or have some form of inflammation. So you know, in the absence of all of those, which, which a doctor would be able to check out for you, it becomes more of a discomfort or just a chronic nerve pain, which for which there's also treatments, but more often than not, um, it's really about almost putting it aside and training your mind not to be thinking too much about it and to loosening yourself up in the musculature of your lower, your lower abdomen and, and of your pelvis. So this particular A-team would really, really need to go and consult with a, with a medical professional? Yeah, I think anything that's disturbing is continuing for several weeks at a time that doesn't have a clear answer and there's no diagnosis definitely is worthwhile going to to have that checked up because the one thing I can definitely say is that any man who's got an ongoing problem with his genitals can't stop thinking about that problem. And over the weeks and months and the years even, that problem becomes a massive issue in their mind. Um, And the the less you talk about it, um, the more of a problem it becomes. And sometimes it can be simple reassurance which can settle the whole thing and um, allow that pain almost to to to, to leave your mind uh, and no longer be a problem. Atimas, we are talking uh, to Dr. Anthony Smith, who's a family physician and a medical sexologist. Uh, call in as we're talking men's health on 011-714-2006 or SMS 41391. WhatsApps go to 0614-104-107. I must say I've received uh, a message on my personal WhatsApp number from uh, a friend who said, <laughs> a very awkward topic, Patricia. And this is a male person, so clearly men don't like talking about their health and especially when it has to do with their sexual health please guys Mm. open up it's time for you to ask the questions because we've got someone who's professional this part of the program is not suitable for sensitive listeners and for anyone under the age of 18 note that the views expressed on this show are not that of the station or the presenter closet conversations so in the closet uh, dr smith there's the issue of erectile dysfunction and uh, a lot of men, I don't think it's, it's, it's a well understood issue by men and women. And, yes. and, and purely because people say, well, I am only able to, you know, go for so long or my erection is not as strong as it used to be or, you know, the, there's no clear guidelines. So can you please explain erectile dysfunction? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, really important because you want to understand what the difference is between some temporary problem which every man will experience and something which is a real issue um, which you would take to a medical prof- uh, professional to be able to get a little help from. So yeah, this, the definition of erectile dysfunction is when you have um, insufficient erection, it's when you don't get enough blood into the penis um, to be able to sustain penetration such that there is suffering and discomforts being caused either to the man who owns the penis or to his partner. Um, so you can see there's different components to that. It's the, it's the inability to actually get and sustain. So it does also include those who can get an erection, but then when it comes to penetration, the erection falls flat 
And then there's the component of it which is about suffering and about the, you know, just just the, the diminished quality of life that it results in. You know, broadly speaking, when we think about erectile dysfunction, we think of two broad groups. We think of the erectile dysfunction that occurs in a very, very healthy genital area and a healthy penis that occurs more for psychological reasons. And we also think of erectile dysfunction where there's actually problems in the blood vessels, in the nerves, in the tissues, which generally occurs in older men with other illnesses. And that's more like what we call an organic erectile dysfunction. Now, they do overlap. And anybody who's had any form of erectile dysfunction for a while will start to have some psychological effect from it. I think that's very, very clear. But it's interesting that in my practice, increasingly we're seeing more erectile dysfunction in young men who are otherwise well. And, of course, we're seeing the usual amount in, in older men who come, who come in. The, 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 the important thing about erectile dysfunction in an older man is that acts as what we call the canary in the mine shaft because erectile dysfunction in the older man who often is maybe overweight, he is um, suffering from blood pressure, a little bit of diabetes, his cholesterol may be a little high, maybe he's not exercising very much. And these are the very, very small blood vessels that are starting to clog up early. And they are the, the signature, the sign that there could be something going on with the other blood vessels in the body. And what are those other blood vessels? They're the heart, the brain, the kidneys, the, the, the limbs. And so erectile dysfunction, if, if you experience it in your 50, 60, 70 year old man, it actually becomes really important for you to go and see your doctor because it could be the early, early signs of problems in your blood vessels elsewhere. And the research shows that men who present at this age with erectile dysfunction are twice or three times as likely to have a heart attack in the next two to five years, the period coming after that. So, so you, you get a sense that it's a very, very broad thing that happens with erectile dysfunction. The young man who comes in has got a totally different set of problems that need to be addressed. Let's go to some of our A-teamers. Anonymous on uh, the line. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Patricia uh, and other fe- your guests and fellow listeners. So I have... Uh, Actually, one specific question, right? So I was having uh, sexual intercourse last year in January and and being gay, and my partner like noticing my penis. It's like, oh, your urethra is, is different. It's, it's not positioned, like, on top. And for me, it's like, okay, I've been using this for a while. This has never been any issue for me. Like, uh, what are they talking about? And then I went online uh, to see, oh, actually, there's, if not positioned correctly. And so my question to your guest is, uh, is this that much of a major issue? Because for me, it hasn't been that much of a major issue. Now that I know of it, it's just making me think of past experience of maybe the release of the season, is actually um, there's an impact and whether it can be uh, corrected at the age of, of 28 and stuff like that. Thanks, Anonymous. Let's allow Doctor to uh, respond to you. Doctor Smith? Yes. Yeah, there's, thank you for that question. Um, obviously, there's a few different comments that I'd have to that. Um, obviously, I can't be, be certain, but what it does sound like is that in the formation of the urethra, 
you know, the, the urethra is the pipe that goes from your bladder out through the penis and exits. And then you have what's called the ure- urethral meatus, which is the exit point at the penis. Now, when you formed as an embryo in the womb, the way that the body works is that it joins itself. It kind of curves on itself and forms almost like a seam around it. And that's actually how the penis forms, is it forms almost like a tube which turns around and then meets itself uh, and then kind of closes up. And with the, you, you do get, you know, as part of the range of normal, you have um, certain, you know, in certain people, the, the closure of the urethra at the top is a little bit lower than with other people. So there's quite a wide variation of normal. In some people, it doesn't close at all, all the way down the shaft of the penis, and that needs to be surgically um, attended to very early when you're still an infant. What I'm hearing here is that there just may be one variation around that, but I'm also hearing that it makes absolutely no difference to your function whatsoever. And so from a medical point of view, it really is non-contributory and it's not something that you have to worry about. But what is interesting is that a partner pointed it out to you and shifted your attention to it. And this attention has now created a certain degree of self-consciousness, which is a very, very common and understandable type of thing. So really, in a way, you want to ask yourself how much of a problem it really is for yourself. Um, the, 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 the question you, you, you're asking is, can I have this repaired? Well, it's it's quite hard for me to be able to say yes or no, except that you almost certainly, if there clearly was an opening which was very, very low compared to, to the norm, there almost certainly would be a way of being able to help to close that up a little bit. But this really does require consultation with a urologist who may have a special interest in this. So, I mean, in summary, physiologically, it doesn't appear abnormal. I think this does sound to be like um, a variation on normal and is a good explanation for it. Uh, it's not going to affect your function in any way at all, but it may lead to a certain degree of self-consciousness, which then you need to think to yourself, well, you know, I am who I am. You know, that's absolutely fine. This is just a thing. I can live with this. And it sounds to me that, um, you know, if it's somebody else who pointed it out, and prior to that, you had absolutely no concern with it, well, one could argue that you could continue not being concerned about it. But sometimes one thinks that you do want to do something about it, and there may be an answer, but that definitely will be a discussion with a urologist. Another question on uh, WhatsApp says, uh, what causes penis engulfment and how do you correct it? Penis engulfment? Yes, I've never heard of this, so please explain it first. I mean, it's a very interesting phrase. Um, I'm not entirely certain what that means. I mean, I can hypothesize, I can, I mean, either this is where the penis kind of shrinks into the body, that's maybe that. Is that, I'm not sure really. I mean, I could answer that question. I I think maybe maybe, let's go with that because it's just a uh, WhatsApp and it doesn't go any further. Okay. So, I mean, the one thing that does happen sometimes is that men experience this kind of shortening of their penis almost, um, whereby it retracts inside. Now, there there are actually quite a few different reasons for this. Um, The first one, which is probably the most prominent one, is that as you get older, uh, especially if you've had pre-existing long-term chronic erectile dysfunction with other arterial and vascular issues uh, compared to it, you actually do get 
some degree of what we call fibrosis. It's where the sponginess of the penis actually becomes firmer and harder and retracts into itself. And if this is associated with a slightly bigger person who's got a paunchier type of um, uh, area of pad, like a fat pad in the lower belly and around the groin, they, it gives the impression of the penis retracting inside. But often it's the case that there's this idea of you know, foreshortening, which is when the man looks down on his penis, it actually looks a lot shorter than it really is. So that one gets sometimes a false idea that it's, that it's pulling in. The, the, the remedy for this is really lifestyle factors. It's losing weight, it's having frequent erections if it's possible, because the more erections you have, the, the, the healthier the tissue is. Um, there's, there's a saying that we have if tissues, um, they, they lose what they don't use. Um, if, if you're not getting frequent erections and certainly if you're not feeling frequently aroused, that capacity for that tends to become a little quieter and sleepier. So if in fact that is what the listener means by penile, penile engulfment, um, I think it's about losing weight, being fit, getting frequent erections, and also just being aware that you may be judging your penis for being perhaps a little bit smaller than it really is. Another question uh, on uh, WhatsApp says, is using a cock ring safe for sustainability of an erection? Yes, it will. I mean, that, that definitely is a method that people use. Um, and the, the, the reasoning behind that is that if you think about this, you think, think about the penis as being, um, it's, it's really a, a part of your body, which has got a lot of blood vessels in it. And the reason for why it's able to stay erect is because it holds onto the blood in the penis without letting it go through the draining blood vessels. And there's arteries, which take blood in, and there's veins, which take blood out. Now, if you're able to compress the veins from letting blood leave the penis, then you can keep the blood in the penis for a longer period of time time and sustain the erection. What you don't want is to make um, the ring so tight that it's actually cutting the artery supply, the arterial supply, which then will stop blood from actually going in to the penis. And in fact, that can be quite dangerous. So one has to also be aware that you, you, you need to be able to take it off if, if you can and you know, use the right size and use it in the right way. And also depending on the kinds of underlying medical conditions. So, for example, if you're somebody who's on blood sending medications, you may want to be a little bit more careful about using something like that. And then for Viagra, I mean, if one wants to be using Viagra to assist them with their erections, what sort of things do they need to look out for um, that could hinder, um, you know, the impact of the Viagra on their bodies? I mean, Viagra is a whole subject on its, on its own because it, it really, and it's such an interesting medication. Initially, it was, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, it was initially a medication which was being investigated for treating blood pressure in people who are getting angina of the heart. And they just happened to notice that these men were quite enjoying taking this medication because it gave them uh, erections just by the by. Um, so it was refashioned as an erectile dysfunction medication. And as I said earlier, just revolutionized the treatment of, of erectile dysfunction. Um, the thing about Viagra is that it, it works, um, or you know, any of the other medications uh, which are similar to it. It, it. And it works by stopping the blood flow exiting the penis. Um, 
So, I mean, there's a couple of different things you want to think about. Uh, first of all, if you do have severe heart problems, in particular, if you are having heart pain and that you use the spray under your tongue or the tablet under your tongue to stop you from having angina, that's probably the ultimate contraindication to using Viagra. Um, but that's probably the most important thing. If you are somebody who drops your blood pressure very suddenly or if you have an unstable heart, you may also want to be careful. But actually, there's very few contraindications to using Viagra. It can be used quite safely. Um, and you know, I always say you've got to use it cleverly um, because you want to also retain the faith in your own capacity to get an erection and maybe not rely on the Viagra all the time. But it's different for different people. Some people need it just once or twice, and some people don't even have to use it. They can just put it in their pockets and the comfort of knowing that it's nearby is sufficient for them. And others need it all the time. You can even get a form of that type of medication that you can take on a daily basis, which in certain cases is incredibly useful. More questions here. This one is on SMS. It says, hey, Patricia, I have a problem with the itching testicles, penis and a burning urine. And I consulted a doctor and he said it's a urethritis. I hope I'm saying it right and uh, mm-hmm. is uh, reoccurring. Am I going to live with this forever and what to expect in the future? Because I'm only 40 years old and there are no risks of prostate cancer. Oh, my word. So... Um, I mean, I'm very happy. I like hearing these questions because generally I can be very reassuring. I I think the itch is probably something different to the urethritis. Just for your listeners, urethritis is inflammation of the urethra. We talked about the urethra earlier. It's that pipe that leads from the bladder out through the penis and exits where the exit is. And the urethritis is... um, not always, but most often a sexually transmitted illness. It's a little infection. It can be a bacteria that starts to inflame the, 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 um, the outer, the, the actual urethra and presents with maybe a little bit of a discharge. It may present with, with, with pain when you pass in urine, uh, going, wanting to go to the toilet quite frequently. And the, the bugs that cause it are generally treatable. You need to diagnose what they are and there's tests either urine tests or a swab that can diagnose it. And once you've diagnosed it, you are able to treat it. One of the big um, mistakes the doctors sometimes make is that they don't treat the partner of the man who's got it. So the man has the infection, he gets treated, and then he comes back a few months later with the same problem because he hasn't actually had his partner treated as well. But these problems are imminently treatable and my feeling about the scratching and the itching is that it could be a mild fungal infection or a little bit of eczema. Um, but similarly, readily, it should, this should be treatable. Um, so I, I'm not really thinking that any of these problems are long-term problems. And they don't have any bearing on prostate cancer whatsoever. Prostate cancer is a separate issue which would need to be looked for totally independently. So it is imperative that um, if something is almost like an STI and the man gets tested for it the wo- and gets treated, the partner in his life, whether it's another man or it's another woman, or if it's a polygamous relationship, that people involved in it should also get tested and treated or else it's going to keep reoccurring. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And I think it's, it's not only for the treatment and the, 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 the wish to stop it from reoccurring, it's also about sexual etiquette. 
It's about communication and taking responsibility for your sexuality and also taking responsibility for your partner with whom you've entered into a sexual relationship. Uh, it may be that they don't have um, the illness at all, or, or, or but it may be you know, that you have it and then you have um, a need to communicate it to them. And I can tell you that this is some of the, these are some of the most difficult conversations that people have and uh, really have difficulty being knowing what words to use to sit down because it's just so embarrassing to have to sit down and talk to your partner or your sexual partner um, about something like this. Um, very, very difficult, but nevertheless something which needs to be negotiated. And I like to say from an early age, um, I really encourage young people who are starting a sexual relationship with a partner to first go and chat to their doctors and have an STI check prior to um, commencing sexual intercourse with their, with their new partners because it's just a great way of being able to open up that dialogue and it really ultimately brings you together. And the other thing it does is it just stops a nasty surprise from occurring a few months into the relationship with all the, the breakout and the, the fallout that that can actually cause. Let's take a bit of a break. We'll be back with a Dr. Smith talking men's health. This part of the program is not suitable for sensitive listeners and for anyone under the age of 18. Note that the views expressed on this show are not that of the station or the presenter. Closet Conversations. So in conversation with Dr. Anthony Smith and we are talking men's health. Remember, you can join in on the conversation on 011-714-2006 or SMS 41391. WhatsApps go to 614 On the line, I've got Atima Philemon. Good evening, Philemon. Evening, Patricia and Dr. Smith, as well as Elizabeth. Good evening. Okay. Um, the question that I got to Dr. Ver is, what is the reason for erectile dysfunction just a few seconds before the action, especially when you, you, you try wearing the condom, but if you don't wear the condom, there is no issue there. Not sure if my, my question is clear. Dr. Smith, do you have any follow-up questions to Philemon? You know, I didn't share that clearly. Could, could I get that? All right, Philemon. Um, uh, uh, repeat that for me? Yeah. So Philemon is saying what causes erectile dysfunction uh, if you've had a, a normal erection and just before you're about to enter the vagina and you put on your condom and then, you know, you go flaccid. What causes that? Oh, that's a very good question, uh, Philemon, and a very common question as well. You know, earlier I was talking about you know, some more psychological um, forms of erectile dysfunction. You know, when we're talking, when, when we speak to somebody, when a, a doctor speaks to somebody who's experiencing erectile dysfunction, we ask a few very important questions. We ask, do you have it all the time? Is it with every partner? And, and is it every time you have sex? Uh, is it something that happens uh, when you only have partnered sex? Is it only something that you get when you are about to penetrate and otherwise you're able to have an erection the whole time. And this actually gives a huge amount of information because the, the, the reason why you have an erection in the first place is because there's part of your brain communicating with the various nerves and blood vessels of your penis to allow a steady blood flow and to allow a maintenance of the erection 
with, without there being any particular problem. Now, if a part of your brain starts firing, if the part of your brain which is worried about something or is distracted or is starting to feel anxious or maybe is starting to feel some type of emotion which runs contrary to the emotion of feeling pleasure, then it acts as like a break in the system. It's like throwing a cog in a, in a well-turned wheel. Everything just grinds to a halt. And there can be multiple reasons for this. So the, what, what is almost certainly happening there is that some level of inhibition is overriding the erectile function. Everything was going very smoothly. You were feeling good. And then something grew up in the, in the, in the brain which was an inhibitory type of thought. Now, it could be many, many things. Um, this could be related to something with your partner. It could be something about the relationship with the partner. It could also be related to some type of expectation that you have about yourself. So the one thing that men have to deal with that women really don't have to deal with is the fact that their main sexual organ is out there for everybody to see or for every partner to see, should I say. It's very, very visible. So there's a lot of performance expectation, both the man himself who owns the penis and the person who is with him uh, at the time of the use of his penis. And so there's this pressure which a woman doesn't feel in quite the same way. Um, and that level of pressure can sometimes spill over uh, and cause an inhibition of the erection. So, I mean, I would be asking the questions, well, you know, when did it start? Why, why did it start? What is the association in your mind when it was happening? And is it with this particular partner? Was it with other partners? And what is it that I am thinking? What is it that I'm concerned about when I'm starting to have sex that maybe would come to the point where things would go wrong and I would lose my erection? It, it certainly is the case that many men who have some level of erectile dysfunction start to worry when they have sex that they're going to have it the next time. So just imagine you are a guy there who's had one or two bad episodes. You've had a little bit of where the erection hasn't worked so well, and this is common enough. And then what happens is you're having sex. There's a bit of pressure over there to perform. And then you're starting to anticipate the problem that you're going to not be able to get a proper erection. And now you start thinking not about your partner and about the pleasure that you're having, but you're thinking about the fact that you're not going to have an erection. And this thought removes you and makes you start looking at yourself and you're starting to think, when is it going to happen? Is the erection going to continue? Is it going to stop? And you start worrying and all these thoughts are going through your mind and you may as well be in the next room doing something else entirely. So what I'm really saying is that you're probably getting removed from the moment and there's something which is coming down and inhibiting you. And certainly if it's a worry about erectile dysfunction, that worry in its own right makes erectile dysfunction worse. Let's go to a voice note. My brother has been married for 12 years, but right now the wife, she's complaining that he's not doing anything. But he himself, he's saying when he goes outside, uh, outside or the marriage, everything is fine. So I don't know if that is possible. Thank you so much for your nice show. Is it possible to not uh, feel aroused by your partner uh, that you are committed to, but when you go outside and cheat, then, yeah, things just work well? Oh, yes. Now, there's, there's very good reasons for why that can happen. 
And it comes back to the to 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 what I was saying earlier. Um, yeah, in a in a long term relationship, there are many forces which are conspiring to kill the desire for sex and the libido of the couple. Domesticity. There's the routine. There's the predictability of the relationship. There's the fact that there may be kids around. There's the 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 the, the, the fact that work is maybe quite stressful and any other number of um, intimate issues which have grown up over a long period of time which can get between you and your spouse or your partner, your long-term partner. And there's something about a new partner which can be very freeing and can be very novel and a little bit of risk and a little bit of novelty often is catnip to libido and to erectile function. So this is, I'm not saying this is a good thing or I'm certainly not condoning it in any way. It's really an non-judgmental reflection but under these kinds of circumstances you find that there's an invigoration because of the new partner the novelty and the fact that this is a, an entirely new world that's being explored full of the curiosity and the kind of energy that a new sexual relationship can bring with it and so it really does speak to the kind of challenge that longer term couples have in being able to keep their sex lives fresh because it's inevitably the case that you go through periods of time where your desire really just goes down and your erectile function isn't quite as good, you aren't as interested, maybe there's some deep emotions which are inhibiting you. So this does really pose a challenge for people in long-term relationships. Doc, um, you know, we've had such an informative time and I think we'd love to have you again on the show. Please make time for us again so we can tackle more of these issues that are so pertinent for us as adults. For those who'd like to be in touch with you, please give us your website and contact details because I think you're one of those doctors that I'd be comfortable with um, <laughs> to, to share everything and anything. Yes. <laughs> well, well it's, it's such a pleasure to, to be with you this evening. Um, our website's very simple, dranthonysmith.ca.ca. Um, and certainly it's been a great pleasure to, to be speaking with you and your, your listeners tonight. Thank you very much, Dr. Anthony Smith. It's been a pleasure. A-teamers, one minute after midnight. Yay! It's a Friday <laughs> for all of you um, who enjoy your weekends. Please make sure you're responsible and you don't become one of those who are um, a super spreader. So be safe. Keep uh, social distance, physical social distance. Wear the mask. Wash your hands with uh, soap and water for 30 seconds. And um, please Please, 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 please sanitize those hands and keep safe. It's been such a great week. Thank you so very much, A-teamers. Uh, Asanda Beta is coming in at 3 a.m., so make sure you are tuned in. We'll be back again on Monday, 10 p.m. But on social media platforms, we'd love to hear from you. I'm seeing a lot of your DMs, really enjoying interacting with you, at Patricia N. Nduli. That's how you can get me on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. May goodness and grace lead you to the great heights of success.